Hello, listeners, and welcome to A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Today, my wonderful guest is Harry Fitzpatrick. Harry is an actor, director, and producer based in both Essex, England, and Valencia, Spain. Since graduating university in 2020, he has founded his own theatre company, Temporal Horizons Theatre. He has also produced an online feature-length film showcasing different extracts from the works of William Shakespeare in order to raise money for NHS charities. Together during the COVID-19 pandemic and a Brechtian and Cabaret-influenced adaptation of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus set in Weimar, Berlin during the 1920s and staged on the anniversary of Marlowe's death. More recently, he has adapted and directed an audio drama miniseries based on Bram Stoker's Gothic masterpiece, Dracula. Welcome, Harry, to A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. It's great to have you. Hello there. So, to get things started, when were you first introduced to Shakespeare's works and what was that like? Well, that's um, a bit of a long story, really. I mean, obviously, because um, I grew up in Valencia, Spain, I did go through essentially a lot of the similar criteria as you would have gone through from school from the late primary stage to going into secondary school and then onwards and for me my first real introduction that i can remember is actually not seeing any of his plays but was from watching an episode of uh, doctor who when it first premiered in 2007 with uh, david tennant as a doctor as and it was an episode where he took his uh, companion martha jones played by free jadman back to the late 1500s to the time of when Shakespeare was at his peak in terms of his writing career and you just had the Globe Theatre be built on the South Bank and it also featured uh, three witches that might have inspired him later on because uh, the character companion goes and you've written about witches like I have when was that David Taylor's dog's like not quite yet my first real introduction in terms of his work was when I was taken in secondary school to a production in Valencia of Midsummer Night's Dream and in that production that was all done in Valencian in Catalan so I never really heard the language in terms of English until later on but from obviously seeing it as a 12-13 year old who at that time was more interested in sort of like playing video games or being with mates and it was quite a strange thing as I've seen how the actor playing Puck would go in through the audiences, going through the boxes and I'd actually climb, climb around the auditorium walls and that was, I mean, I was like, hmm, people actually do this for a living. So that was my first introduction into his work, but my first real introduction hearing it in the original text was when I saw the last five minutes of, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the uh, Hollow Crumb adaptations on the BBC. Oh, I've heard of them. I really want to watch them, but I haven't seen them yet. Mm, I'd really recommend to us, um, and also to anyone listening, um, they're, very, they're really good uh, film versions of the Shakespeare history plays of Richard II up to Richard III. And the ones that I saw in 2012 was um, a collection of the plays from Richard II all the way up to Henry V and it had an all-star cast such as you had Ben Winshaw, Rory Kinnear, Tom Hiddleston, one of his early roles just before he uh, did Loki in the Marvel films and Jeremy Irons and obviously nearly every actor you can uh, you can name within the British industry or a Harry Potter film and it was um, the last five minutes of uh, the 
Henry the Fourth Part Two. It's the scene of when um, Prince Hal takes the crown, thinking his father's died, and then goes into the room, and then his dad comes in. He's like, um, "Did you just think? Did you just take my crown?" <laughs> I love that scene. I love it. Yeah, and it's just amazed me going from seeing that anger to then suddenly the two of them sort of finding common ground and then him just giving his last bit of wisdom to him before he takes power. And then, of course, the most famous way how when he becomes Henry V then dismisses his best friend full staff and just casts him aside. And you had, obviously, Tom Hiddleston there, one of his earlier roles, and I think that was the time when people started to take notice of him and Simon Russell Beale as uh, Sir John Falstaff. Like the two of them, like really, really did, did the scene justice. And to that, I was like, oh, I like this. I want to see the next one. And then the next one was obviously Henry V. And then I saw that and it was really interesting. I wanted to obviously explore it more and just became very, and then Bug Vini and the Scouts are doing plays there and just wanting to like grow and learn, understanding more about performance and theatre and acting and just around the time of like 15, 16, I then joined different sort of drama groups in Spain, including one which did work of Shakespeare in both English and Spanish. So, I mean, if I still actually remember, I can do to be or not to be both in, in like Spanish there, which was... Um, oh, wow. And after that, I came back to the UK in 2015 and just started studying, started learning more about different practitioners and genres, but then... In like the first year of HE in university, I then got the chance to perform um, with my class Hamlet in uh, Italy, in uh, the Puglia region, in a uh, castle in Bari, which is on the uh, coast, which, um, fun fact, is where they did a lot of the filming for the Mel Gibson film adaptation of Hamlet in the 90s. Taking the scenes from like the play of Hamlet and trying to find innovative ways of really playing and experimenting with the text so that really introduced me to what theatre can do and just playing with it and creating something which was both site specific and making the material both understandable to any average person that was just having a walk through the castle that didn't speak any English, but they could still understand the context of what you were doing. For me, that's really influenced going forward for myself as a practitioner in terms of not just acting but what the importance of like physicality and the way you pronounce something as well as your movement and the visuals in order to make material that feels both in a way inclusive so that even if somebody never seen a play or any Elizabethan text they would still understand the story and the meaning and yeah I wasn't like taught Shakespeare in the classroom I sort of found it on my own and if you've seen like really good quality productions, I understood, and that's what I think a lot of practitioners do need is that sense of, of understanding those importance as well as the text. So that's my um, introduction, sort of to Shakespeare, really. Bit of a long journey, and uh, sometimes I'm not through like the school system, sort of. I think yeah, it's best to learn Shakespeare outside of the school system. I personally learned Shakespeare through reading on my own. Listeners, forgive me. I've probably told this story before, but. I learnt about Shakespeare through my grandfather's edition, which I inherited from him. It's a beautiful blue leather-bound 1960s edition of the complete works of Shakespeare. It smells like him. I love it so much. It's got these beautiful illustrations. And I just read it. I got it when I was seven and I started reading it. Of course, I didn't understand to begin with, but I just enjoyed it. I reveled in the words and I started to learn and I started to really, really become one with these stories. You talked about Puck coming through the audience. 
in that production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, you saw, I love it when they do that in Shakespeare. I love it. And the Globe do that a lot in their productions. They have actors come through the audience and exit the stage as well. In a production of Julius Caesar, just as Brutus was about to be stabbed, she actually, because it was a she in this production, she turned around, walked off the stage and exited the theatre. And that just felt so, so different, but so powerful. Yeah, like the rawity of it and just like, and that's the thing with live performance is that, I think it's the word that everybody uses, that hunger and the danger there, because it's like anything can happen in theatre and this the danger, it could work, it might not work. Let's just see it. And I mean, you see some like companies that really play on that aspect, like the mischief theatre, when they play on what goes wrong and what can, can go wrong. But as you're saying as well, like that immersiveness and it breaks that fourth wall boundaries rather than just it being end on. You don't know what could happen. And for yourself, seen as a young performer and as a young student, it's like you think, oh, I never really thought of it this way before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Shakespeare's theatre was called The Globe. He wrote all the world's a stage. He wrote these lines to talk about the world as a performance space, of our lives as performances. And I think that's so powerful. And I think when you have the actors interacting with the audience, when you have them walking past them, exiting among them, you really feel immersed in the production. And even um, even in the lines of like for Hamlet at the end of Act One, after he's seen the ghost, he says, within this distracted globe, I will remember you, which you have to think like, because at that time, yeah, he had roughly around the early 1600s when the play premiered and the Globe Theatre, as I said, that was in full swing. So anything could have happened. And it's actually um, a bit of a fun fact, but because that's the thing with immersiveness, they would have, you had the plays there and you had the jokes down for both like the audience like the groundlings who paid like less than a penny at the door. You could just stand there or as even today, you just pay a fiver to stand in the, what they call the pit now in the Globe Theatre. And yeah, it's like you could just be standing there and then you just see this performer just drinking, playing Sir Toby Bells, just drinking a can of lager and offering you one. You're like, what? Yeah. Shakespeare's characters are so human. There's another bit of text I wanted to reference and it's Richard II's um, monologue when he's in prison, the famous, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it, yet I'll hammer it out. And then he goes on to talk about how he will people this world with his thoughts. And that's exactly what Shakespeare did. That is exactly what he did with his mind. He created worlds that we put on stage and we immerse ourselves in and that we love. And that is so, so special. That piece of text has stuck with me. And the first time I saw Richard II was the Show Must Go Online's version. And when I heard those words aloud, it just struck something within me. Was there like a special switch on moment for you? Um, for me, I think the switch on sort of moment was um, going back to when I saw the Hollow Crown for the first time, when I saw the Henry V one in full, which had cast of Tom Hiddleston, you had that, and then you had this, but for me, the scene with um, Falstaff's death, and you had uh, Julie Walters playing Mistress Quickly. At that time, I was sort of, I was sort of in a bit of a grief stage, really, because um, was about just over a year like just sort of lost lost my grandmother who was just very close with and it was those uh minds about heaven and that and I was like wait that that happened like hundreds of years ago and then just yeah people sort of feeling it that sort of that timeless nature of those 
universal themes of life and of death and just and also the the humorous part at the end when even though he's like won the battle and this, that he's just awkward trying to talk to this woman the first time and trying to propose marriage and just try to get her and he's like Henry to Catherine and you know it was like those sort of things that I just felt like really I think there's that old saying nothing's nothing's original and more things stay the same I mean there's even a very famous uh, Roman poem of um, a bloke talking about when he lost his dog. And this was written what nearly two thousand years ago, so it's like yeah, you know, those that sort of thing, those sort of things really like that universality of everything, and that's sort of with the theatre that I create. Like I just want to find work that just has those universal themes, even something that just yeah makes us think about it, and then makes us realise, and it makes us realise that you know we're not if we're going through different things, we're we're not alone in those thoughts, like. Everyone's had them, even when you read uh, like The Merchant of Venice, when he says, I know not why I am so sad. Those things, like, sorry for a bit of a, bit of a downer there, but it's just that, those universal things. And I think those are what we need as people to grow. And that's why things like, yeah, the arts, that's why the arts are, are important. Yeah, they're so important. Because they teach us so many important, crucial lessons. And they teach us that people have been feeling these things for much longer than we've been around, for hundreds of years, for such a long time, going back to the ancient periods, going back to yeah, the Renaissance. All of this, all of these emotions, all of these human experiences, they're not new. In Shakespeare, we have Constance's grief fills up the room of my absent child. We have Hamlet and his grieving over his father. And we can see that so viscerally. And we have Margaret of Anjou when she loses her son. She talks about the loss of her son and her husband in Richard III. Mm. These things, they're so powerful. Mm. I mean, I to some extent relate with your experience of grief with Shakespeare. When I started reading my grandfather's edition, this was shortly after he'd passed away. So it was very personal. It felt like being close to him again. Mm. Mm. yeah and that's that's the thing as well it's like for me what made my, me more interested in that yeah the similar experience of Shakespeare like for my granddad who's 90 now and still still around I mean he's more healthy than like people like younger than me and like for him as well like he'd never read Shakespeare or seen it but we both like I said you want to come and see these shows or see this film version so he sort of got brought on the journey for understanding, learning it. And he, even for him, like he never seen it. It's like he quickly picked it all up. And then, and then for us, we did, and this was when I started uni and then I come back to Spain and lived with um, him for the first couple of years. And we then, and that was the time as well, that's comedy Upstart Crow came out with David Mitchell, which uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is probably, it's really funny. I mean, it's written by, the guy that wrote Blackadder, Ben Elton, and they just really play on a lot of the Shakespeare tropes or really take the mickey out of it and say, oh, here's some ideas of where he might have ended up getting his place from. Well, that's great. I need to check that out. I, I love this podcast because the guests always bring so many ideas and so many recommendations to the table. It's so much fun. Because, yeah, I'm 17. I'm still learning about the world of Shakespeare. And it's so great to learn with all of you. It's so much fun. It's like that meme somebody says, it's not this, it's the friends we made along the way. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. Um, 
Eleanor Wilkinson on her episode talked about Shakespeare as community and I cannot agree more because I've I found my community through this author through this well over 400 year old writer I found the show must go online and since then I found a plethora of other brilliant Shakespeare scholars and actors and directors and writers as well which is so so nourishing for my own journey yeah and even as well as that it's like it then opens you up to ideas that you hadn't thought about for scenes before and then you're learning about the history of the time like obviously Macbeth was written just after the attempted assassination attempt by Guy Fawkes on the king mm -hmm. you can think of it as a play of like getting inside the mind of a killer someone that wants to commit regicide and also there's a very clever line that towards the end of Macbeth I'm saying Macbeth and I'm just looking around quickly because I'm going to make sure nothing collapses on me but no in this um after it's during the scene with the fight with Macduff, uh, spoiler alert, for a play that's uh, nearly 400 years old, but yeah, Macduff tells Macbeth that we will stick you, this is a, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but we'll stick your head on a spike for all to see of our traitors. And if you think that people that went to see the play, when they left, you'd have to get from Suffolk back to London, they'd have to go past Tower Bridge, where you'd have the heads of all the traitors. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I never thought of that. Mm. Oh wow, yeah, that makes it even more impactful. Oh my goodness. Also for Bank the character Banquo, it's like his light his lineage actually is meant to be descendants that lead up to James of England, James the First. Yeah. So yeah, that play was kind of kind of propaganda in a way, written for the king. Yeah, I mean Richard the Third, I mean, I love that play, but I don't really like the character of uh, Richmond in it because it's like when you watch it, you just feel so much propaganda there, like the knight in shining armor, and it's like you're rooting for you end up rooting for this man that's murdered children and schemed his way to the top of power. But it's like, but he's telling us his faults, so at least he's honest with us. Yeah, that great soliloquy after his dream, where he's talking about the fact that he's confused: do I love myself? Because you know. If I hated myself, that would leave me in a very uncomfortable position. And then he realizes that, yeah, he hates murder. He so he hates the things he's done, and he has this existential crisis. And it's so well written and so beautifully done. And yeah, you root for Richard. You you can't do anything but. And I think because it's like those, um, and also you look at the writing and how that went on to influence, like House of Cards, like the original BBC version with Ian Richardson. Which I'm just going to say to people is so much better than the later American Netflix version. And then there's probably some American listeners that want to argue with me on that. But personally, that's where I stand. Yeah, Richard is a fascinating character. You can't help but love him, despite the fact that he is determined to prove a villain. He has decided that, yeah, this is the form nature's given him. I mean, the man manages to get himself a wife over her late husband's corpse. It's insane. That scene is so insane and so intense. Yeah, and even um, actually, when I was when I was studying, I did the uh, acted out that scene, and I just thought, you know what, just go all cute. Just I was thinking, just do the Puss in Boots size with that scene. <laughs> you know, when he just when Puss in Boots does the thing, because like, you have to think about how exactly would somebody be able to do that? Are they a very skilled like politician, very skilled smooth talker, or? But at the same time, you do see a lot of people get attracted to these very dark individuals or we end up, what's the old saying, the rooting for the villain. 
Yeah, there's something so intriguing, something so mysterious about this darkness, about this, you know, ability to do things that a lot of us can't even fathom. Yeah, and even when it's, and I think when it's fictional characters as well, it's because it's like that, it's that safety net or that sort of, we feel like, okay, because in real life we have individuals who are very abhorrent. We see their actions for what they are, but they even then you see, you could guess people get swept up into the madness of it all and when we look at like the world today, you look at politicians and you look at people within pop culture and then you can see why plays like Richard III's are always performed like, by seasonal actors or they're sort of, it's a very weird thing within mainstream theatre. They're seen as like, if you want to be an actor of classical theatre, you've got to do these these roles. You've got to do Hamlet. You've got to do Richard III, King Lear. It's like the sort of, that some point or another, an actor that's had a career ends up doing those roles over like David Tennant or Kenneth Branagh or Rory Kinnear who's done that or Ian McKellen and and that's another thing as well as like going back to Richard III like Ian McKellen's and that was one of the early things I saw was uh, his adaptation of Richard III where they set it in the 1930s and he sort of this play into that idea of like Richard III sort of turning Britain into a fascist state you just have him have him and his followers all walking around in in black SS uniforms. I mean, yeah, you can you can play with Richard's character in so many ways because of yeah, he transforms the world he lives in. He decides that because he's not able to take mm. part in society the way that his brothers can, mm. he decides he's going to mold society, mold the world he lives in to suit himself. And we see him do that. And we see him murder and plot and scheme. And we see him not feel like an ounce of remorse for it until that scene after his dream. Yeah. Or even then he's like, he says, oh, I don't like my wife anymore. Let's replace her with my niece. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's again, it's one of the reasons why it's always been popular to either see or, or work on. And yeah, and that's the, that's the thing as well. Like from, it's like from productions that I've seen, such as, um, saw the National Theatre live. They did the productions of when they did 50 years of all their work on stage in uh, 2013, when it was their 50th anniversary, and they screened it on the BBC. And their first thing they opened up was Hamlet with the ghost scene. And just, again, that imagery, like, you just see Derek Jacobi with the lighting on him and this, the feeling of a cold atmosphere. And he doesn't even say a word. He's just standing there holding the helmet. and he then just walks off and you're like, it was just five minutes of people talking about, oh, do you see something weird? No, oh, we're not going to see anything weird. And then you're just like, well, I'm, in, I'm hooked. Yeah, that ghost, the ghost scene in Hamlet, of course, it's famous. You've, you see so many pictures of it. You see so many artistic renditions. You hear it like Tchaikovsky wrote a great piece of music on Hamlet. You can experience it in so many different ways at this point in every different production that you see of Hamlet. That scene is so pivotal to his character. Yeah, and even in the um, production of like in the RSC or even going back to National Theatre, they did one in 89 where Daniel Day-Lewis was playing the role, but then he freaked out and he had to, he walked out of the project because he said, I saw my father's ghost on stage. I can't go on. Oh, my God. And because, I mean, with Daniel Day-Lewis, this is an actor that really 
loves to really immerse himself into his roles and that's the thing with production and then they had to bring on Ian Charleston the act like a great actor who'd been in productions like Guys of Dolls who'd been in different ones but at that point in time he was dying of HIV but Ian C. McKellen said it's like it made that production more poignant because it really the play was about death and when he said his last line of let be he didn't have to imagine and that's that's the thing with with productions when they really break down that barrier what it is that makes the life and death of it all and how people when they love when they love something so much even they want to find a way to still contribute and the funniest story was some um, i don't know if you've heard of it is when david tennant did it at the rsc you know this yorick's skull mm-hmm. they used a real skull oh yeah i've heard of that i've heard that story there was a british composer called tchaikovsky not the russian tchaikovsky a different one and in his will, he donated his skull to the RSC. And when it was a production, they had to get a lot of paperwork through in order to have it on stage. But I don't know if they used it in when they did the later film version, but the one that they did the um, in that moment, he is talking to and, yeah, contemplating on just how much, you know, like in this scene is like, you look at all of this, all of what this man did, his excellent wits, the humour, how he brought down the house and what what we are all reduced to in the end. And when I worked on that scene, because I've done that scene in Spanish, playing the gravedigger, and then I've done, then directed that scene. The gravedigger scene is another great scene. There's so many great scenes in Hamlet. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much it's pretty much at that point where it feels like you're at Abbott concert. You've seen an alarm to when they're speaking the lines. Yeah. But this, when I when I did the scene, I chose um, in the projects I did, uh, as you mentioned in the opening with my company, uh, Temporal Horizons Theatre. We did the scene uh, because we want, I wanted to base off the seven stages of man's speech from As You Like It. And you had the infant, the student, the lovers. When I did that, when I chose to do that over Zoom, it was like doing the rehearsals and the actor that played Hamlet and the actor played Horatio, we just spent weeks and I just said to him, look, you just, you need to think about, it's like, imagine those different things. All, all of what we've done, all of all of what, obviously this is going to sound very melancholic, but this is the thing we can do. We can do all these things. And in the end, what have we got to show for it? And I think that's why Hamlet is popular because it just, yeah, deals with those issues of life and death. The circle of life. Yeah, and in Macbeth, Shakespeare wrote that slightly differently. Life is but a flickering candle, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. What does it all mean? Yeah. Everything we do. Yeah, and uh, obviously going a bit, once again going off topic, but don't know if you ever saw the uh, RSC production of Macbeth with Christopher Eccleston where they did a moment where after he kills the king, they set a countdown timer. Oh, that's brilliant. For two hours. And then as soon as he says, oh, holds his throat to Macduff, as soon as Macduff kills him, the countdown timer stops. Oh, that works so well with the witch's prophecies. Mm. That works so well. It also adds attention to it as well, because you got then, you think, are they going to fit all that in? Is it going to, is going to flow naturally? But yeah, and yeah, going as I said, going back to uh, the scene with the skull and that—that that was um, obviously working on and thinking about obviously with those those themes because Hamlet is a student of philosophy. He does quote a lot of the classics. He gets the actors act out the scene from the story of the fall of Troy. Oh yeah, 
and the Hecuba, Hecuba speech. Yeah, and then the, the murder of Gonzago. And it makes you think, well, this is someone that's obviously going to be able to afford to go to some of the top universities at the time, like Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. And he then has those people like Horatio following him around. It's sort of, you could say, like an audience surrogate where Horatio's watching all these moments like he's there for opening seeing the ghost with the soldiers. He's there in the moment when Ophelia breaks down and he's there when Hamlet arrives. He's with him with that scene for the skull. He's with him in his last moment. So, and he's the only one left and he's told to tell them what happened. My goodness. So it's like, it's like you could say Shakespeare created someone like Horatio to be the audience surrogate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. That is a brilliant point. Because, yeah, if you do look at Horatio, he doesn't really make any personal speech. He doesn't really offer his own personal views. He's just, he's a receiving what everyone else is. Yeah. And if you think about it, because, yeah, Horatio is Hamlet's best friend. Mm. They talk about a lot. And then Hamlet, with his soliloquies, talks to the audience, letting his feelings out. In a way, Horatio becomes the audience. But the the audience, I suppose, in a way, also becomes Horatio. That has blown my mind. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I, I have a, I have another question. Sorry, just give me a second. Okay, I'm okay now. So I wanted to ask about how Shakespeare has impacted your work. So like as an actor, director, producer. As an actor, it, it very much taught me about with um, like projections and, and also with, uh, you can't just speak like with one flat tone. You have to really experiment with the voice but not being like your voice is all the matters no 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 you can't speak like but you're really playing around with the material like as you're saying there's a way you could say a phrase or there are ways that different lines can be interpreted in different ways like you have the moment of the scene of in richard ii when he goes here cousin or you can read as here cousin in so many different ways, like passive aggressive with sadness, sincerity, and that's and also with um, directing it as well. When I've done like the scene of Coriolanus, like there's a lot of subtext. I directed it for a scratch night at the Golden Goose Theatre in London, and in playing with the scene with Ophidius and Coriolanus, like there's a lot of almost homoerotic subtext there. Even when you pl- and then you're just looking at the different stages of different characters in the scenes, like the servants. Ophidius, Coriolanus, as in that moment in time, Coriolanus is banished in exile, so he's equivalent to a, it's like a homeless person walking into your house and you don't know who they are because you're telling the actor, no, no, you've got to, when you talk more and more, you've got to then give it in that sense of like hearing because the character is meant to be a military commander and you're seeing that coming through their words, coming through the way they're speaking. With Shakespeare as well, it's like, as I was taught by Wendy Morgan. I love Wendy. Well, I mean, she worked at the National Theatre in the 80s under Peter Hall, who founded the RSC. So she's the person I usually go to when it comes to when understanding like Shakespeare's text and usually having a lot of conversations with her about, about the Bard and that. And, and I also directed a scene of Romeo and Juliet for her for my charity project where she played Juliet and the actor that was we worked with. Um, one of the scene, the scene with... Uh, Ayaz Ahmed and Wendy Morgan, and she really helped us, including me, towards like working on the text and thinking and breaking it down more and more. And it really helped me when it was coming towards working with more younger actors, working that don't really have a lot of experience with um, the text and the scenes. And it also really informed me towards 
making more collaborative approaches like working with more than one person getting their voice across which if you think about it with Shakespeare's company they was always all around them always coming up with ideas like I'm sure somebody in the rehearsal room was like what if in Tarts and Veronica's we he goes villain i've done thy mother oh yeah that line is probably the most famous line from titus andromachus and I, I still and i still hold to the theory that the whole of that play they came on that play whilst drinking heavily within the local tavern nearby i'd support that theory honestly because it's like you know what mate you know what she write in there he turns them into pies yeah oh yeah yeah like grinding up their bones and mixing them with blood to make paste and or, or i'm just thinking of uh mrs lovett have a little priest oh my god yeah oh makes my skin crawl that play a bit yeah well, i mean if you look at it it's like it is pure especially the julie taymor film Anthony hopkins they really go it makes you feel like you are seeing something that would have come out of ancient rome in that time period like the period of when Nero was emperor. It's Shakespeare's bloodiest tragedy, and it's, I think, like his first tragedy. Uh, and also, I think it's more a black comedy. Like, Yeah, actually, yeah. That's a good way to think about it. Because, I mean, I watched this uh, video where this guy breaks down Shakespeare plays, and he says about when the emperor Saturninus, when he's denied to marry Tarsus' daughter, he goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to marry the goth woman you captured. It's a bit like, it's a bit like if you go back in time to 2010, you'll be like, because the Republicans oppose my policies, I, Barack Obama, now marry the leader of ISIS. Oh, my God. <gasps> yeah, that's, it's pretty much that equivalent, like, because at that time with the Roman Empire, they were fighting, like, the Germanic Goth, Goth tribes on the borders, and they were seen as, like, to the state, they were a sort of enemy of them. And that's, I just say, if we talk a lot about that play a lot, we'll be opening up a lot of can of worms. Yeah. But... Yeah. A can of bloody, bloody worms. <laughs> Yep, fit under under crusts of pastry. Oh, yes, indeed. So I guess I have one more question for you, and it's this. What does Shakespeare mean to you? I think for Shakespeare, it's um, really an opportunity to, as you said to yourself, is about finding a way to connect with different groups of people, different backgrounds, and really exploring, exploring those productions. And also, you really feel like when you go through them, you do grow as a both as a creative and as a person because you're hearing these different points of view. You're getting this life experience, and from like from all views, seventeen year old seventeen year old viewpoint is very different to mine. That nearly twenty eight years old, and just those different backgrounds and the way that you see how something that's been done nearly within four to five centuries is still able to have that impact. I mean. When you see productions like the Bridge Theatre's production of Julius Caesar, the immer going back to that immersive quality and the way it really plays on that, that or from working with Teatro de Borgia in Italy, you just get that sense that you're going to go through one end of it in one view. You might come out of the end with different other viewpoints about the material. And that's even going to like even classical drama like ancient Greek, Greek for the work of Sophocles, of Euripides. Yeah, it's like you just have those works that still find a way to sort of talk to someone in the present. And that's why the Renaissance movement sort of happened, like, because you just, you sometimes you go to the past and you'll discover an, an answer to the problem you have at the present. Or from working with different people's viewpoints, you're just like, like from Rob Miles' 
experiences working with it to um, even Eleanor's through the site specific and actually in that charity project she did the scene of Henry V playing Henry V with um, the soldiers scene and just playing around with that feeling of like the night before a battle and get and the actors like just hear you seen you're telling them like I want you to be the soldier that's been through the trenches he's had the hardest he's, he's probably you can see in their eyes as suffering PTSD to the fresh raw recruit that's just there and he's got a picture of his loved one and you just have uh, the king there disguised and just wanting to hear the views of the soldiers and then the one who's sort of in the middle that's seen a bit of it but is probably more of a higher status like a cavalry officer and also what was fun in that zoom is the I told the actors to bring different weapons they had one had a crossbow a bow and arrow the other one had sort of like a, a long officer's sword and then the next one had like a flick knife so it really they really just you you give people that freedom to come in with stuff and it really makes it stand out makes you want to really excited to work on that scene because I think if you've got a director that's got this viewpoint of that, yeah, it's you have a captain of the ship, they know the direction they're going, but you need to, if you can have room to really give people the chance to play with the material, you know, like they do for on the show must go online, they just give you instructions and you have to go away and make your own props and costumes of what you can. Yeah, you just have to work with what you've got. And that's a great thing in Shakespeare because he didn't write a whole lot of stage directions. He didn't write a whole lot of you know, extra detail. Apart from a bear. Yeah, apart from the bear, apart from the bear. But yeah, like Richard's wooing of Anne, we hear the dialogue, but when you put that on stage, when you put that in a physical presence between two people, you have to, you know, you have to work on that scene. You have to make it believable beyond just the words in terms of space, in terms of proximity. Like, I would love to work on this play. Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to work on it myself because I'm like, I've got a lot of ideas that will probably make people be like Jesus or And that's that's what's that's what works. That's the sign of a great creative. You know, these ideas that push the boundaries. Yeah. And also for a lot of people as well, it's like, yeah, you're finding that you don't need to be an educated person because he was doing this to a mass audience that wouldn't have gone through an education, but they would have heard stories about it, they would have chatted in the pubs, they would have wherever and that and that's also why I'd also just for here I'll say to people that do that whole anti Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. This podcast believes in Shakespeare. This podcast believes Shakespeare was a Shakespeare. Yeah, we've I mean even Mark Ryland some like I mean when I, I was depressed when I saw Jarek Jacobi doesn't believe Shakespeare. I mean apparently him and Ian McKellen really get into a lot of arguments like when they're just panning out. Because a lot of um, these viewpoints of it, well, they were they're born out of elitism. Because it's like, how could some bloke from God knows where have written this work? Only a nobleman. And I'm like, there are people in India that hey, they've never been to school, never been to education, but they've got such a huge IQ, breadth of knowledge. I mean, there's a, a film um, Slumdog Millionaire was about. It's like. He was working with a company of actors. The plays are different. And even if you look at King Lear, it looks like it's all set up for happy ending. But probably just as they were rehearsing that point, Shakespeare was like, okay, everybody, we've got to stop. Guys, go home, go and have a drink. I've got a quick, I'm going to rewrite this scene. And then you get the ending like, like that. And then we have, yeah, Nahum Tate later on rewrote the ending to make it more palatable. Yeah. And even as I said, like he would, have, and these are a lot of the texts he did, they were, 
stuff that had been written about years ago, like inspired by stories and myths. And then he just sort of took them, reworked them with a group of these people to make them accessible. Like Christopher Marlowe, like he had the Faustus myth was established well before he did Dr. Faustus. He took the story, just reworked it for his viewpoints. And that's the thing that many people do. I mean, an adaptation isn't always a direct adaptation that we can morph into something else. Like Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow is a lot different to the original Sleepy Hollow. Seneca's Medea, so different to Sophocles or, and with Shakespeare as well, like he was someone that actually got a decent education. Like his dad was mayor of Stratford. He would have gone to local grammar school. He then would have done these works as working as an actor. He would have worked with these companies and troops. And there is that seven years window where they where he could have gone to Venice, Italy, because he does make a lot of references to it, to various parts of, the ta- of Venice, which was the most cosmopolitan. I mean, it was equivalent of like modern day London in terms of trade, cosmopolitan, the cosmopolitan element. And even though Elizabethan London wasn't as what it is today, you would have still had people coming from the new world telling stories, you would have had all these different things and that's why i say to people watching the series upstart crow is done through a very funny way because he gets people coming in that's that just be like like the characters from the plays and then he'll just be like hang on <laughs> yeah it's so great to see all, all these different adaptations of shakespeare and oh my gosh we could talk about this forever but I think we're going to have to wind up for this episode. Thank you so much. This has been so enlightening and so fascinating. Like I said, I could do this forever. So how about we talk a bit about what you're doing at the moment, just so listeners can know where to find you? Lovely. So um, at the moment, I'm releasing an experimental audio version of Dracula by Bram Stoker, which has a very, very diverse ensemble cast. I have an actual actor from... Romania playing the title role, who's the first since Bela Lugosi to play a Romanian actor in the part of Dracula in an English-speaking production since, uh, yeah, as I said, Bela Lugosi in the 1931 Universal film. And I have an actor, Ty Soakfield from the Netherlands, playing the vampire hunter Van Helsing, who is from Amsterdam. And I have the young student actor, Onis Fanis, who is from Greece, playing the Texan, and also Pauline Pericute playing the character of Mina, who in our adaptation we adapted so that the character comes from southern France as the actor Pauline is from is from France herself. So really and I think by doing that you really like Shakespeare, you really you really play with a lot of ideas that comes out of when you're recording or you can catch these series, which um, I'll share a link to, to you, Annabelle, so that you can share. Yep, it'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be on social media. So look out for that, because this is going to be amazing. I've started listening, and I'm very excited. Thank you again, Harry, for everything today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare Listeners, and I will see you next week. But before I see you next week, welcome to The Teenager's Take, the short bit at the end of each episode where I talk about some of the things that stood out to me in each discussion and offer some ideas to take away from our conversations. This chat was so enlightening. 
and have come away bursting to the brim with ideas. Harry's broad range of experiences and impressive theatre knowledge far outweighs my own, but it's offered me a performative perspective I've started to gain over the last few years with my Shakespeare journey. Starting with the incredible The Show Must Go Online, and continuing with my own writing, inspired by The Bard, and my joint company widened Universal Theatre with the inimitable Fenna Capella. Once again, it's imperative to remember that Shakespeare should be taken in his original context, as a theatre maker, a stage writer, and performer himself. The academic significance of his plays stems from their performative origins, with the nature of the globe and the essence of the stage present within and behind every single line of every single play. Shakespeare's plays are uniquely immersive. In this episode, we talked a lot about how he wrote about inherent humanity within his plays, like the seven ages of man and what it all really means. And bringing the actors amongst the audience is a great way of doing that. The Midsummer Night's Dream and Julius Caesar examples discussed are really poignant and excellent. And I wanted to mention a couple more from my experience. When I saw the Comedy of Errors in 2018, Aegean was stood on a platform in the groundling area in the pouring rain, telling his story in the storm-like conditions of the temperamental British weather. And in the Globe's King Lear last year, when I was standing right by the stage, I had the glorious experience of Michelle Terry as the fool crouching on a set of stairs used to connect the audience to the stage right next to me. It was hard to decide what to focus on, really. Catherine Hunter on stage stealing the show as Lear or, well, Michelle Terry, enough said. But this engagement between actor and spectator is so deeply ingrained in the text. I mean, just look up Elizabethan theatre etiquette to see how integral audiences were, that it's great to bring it out in modern performances. Thank you so much, Harry, as well, for telling me the Daniel Day-Lewis story. I find it really, really interesting. Naturally, after recording, I did a little digging to find out what I could about it. Day-Lewis later clarified that he was speaking more metaphorically than literally about his experience, calling it a very vivid, almost hallucinatory moment in which I was engaged in a dialogue with my father, adding that if you're working in a play like Hamlet, you explore everything through your own experience. He said that he felt he saw his father's ghost, in a sense, every day. A literal experience of Hamlet, an experience viscerally recalled by the ghost's anguished remembrance. In Professor Emma Smith's This is Shakespeare, she described Hamlet as a backward rather than forward-looking play, a play obsessed by the past and caught up in the narrative of the Hamlet who doesn't have a living presence but a dead one in the play. Day Lewis's experience literally embodies this dichotomy between father and son. It made me think of Giulio Camillo's posthumously published Le Dea del Teatro, in which he described a memory theatre with an audience of one, the self, with the position of audience and stage reversed, so the spectator self would be looking out to where the audience would usually sit. This was a thought experiment as such, to be used as a system for organising knowledge. So what happens when we transfer the principles elucidated to plays like Hamlet? When Hamlet talks to the audience, theatrically talking to himself, but metatheatrically breaking the fourth wall, have we become the figments of his mind? Would Day-Lewis have seen his father in the audience had he gone on to play Hamlet? 
Going back to the audience, surrogate idea. Honestly, brilliant, absolute genius. Horatio, as Hamlet's best friend, gets to talk to Hamlet and tell his story when it's all over. Just as we do, kind of, as he interacts with us in his soliloquies and shares his innermost thoughts and ideas. And we'll retell his story to friends and family and acquaintances if the performance touched us as it ought to. Another example of this I can think of is Benvolio in Romeo and Juliet, who at the outset asks Romeo why he's sad, just as the audience wants to, goes to the party with him, as the audience metatheatrically does, and has to retell the story of the fatal duel of Act 3. It's an idea I'm definitely going to explore more, because there's a lot to be said for Shakespeare's interactions with his audience. Richard III. Ah, Richard III, a fantastic character. We love him for his wickedness, and by contrast, Richmond is boring and bland and lifeless. But he is most essentially human in his determination to make of life what he can, Richard I mean, and in his mortal foible of learning too late. Similarly, Hamlet and Lear, the three together, produce one of theatre's most monolithic shadows, learning of life too late to save themselves and relying on others to tell their stories. Still, it's often overwhelming to consider them. William Hazlitt even wrote of wishing to gloss over Lear, saying that he could not begin to elaborate on the play's perfections. These plays and their titular characters form a big three, a golden trio of theatre that's placed on a distant pedestal at the pinnacle of the acting profession, and they shouldn't be. Everyone has the right to be and to experience Hamlet, to try and explore what that nature of theatrical being really is. Just as everyone should get to explore Richard and Leah and learn from these dramatic foils to real life. Well, listeners, I hope you've had fun. As of this moment, we're on episode five out of six. One more episode is coming next week. And then I've got a little surprise in store for you. Till next time.